Well, uh, in the rise of the 20th century and now heading into the 21st, uh, there was moments there where modern folk thought that we were moving beyond religion, uh, that we had outgrown it just as a people uh, in our evolutionary process. I mean, God is dead, so we were told, and we make our own values, that we are the measure of all things, that we are the captains of our own fates, and so we make our own rules, and in one sense, God was just no longer necessary since we had progressed so far. And therefore, if God is dead and we make our own values, religion was dead, or so we thought. But of course, man is a religious creature, and his religious impulse never dies, no matter what happens. It's just simply redirected into other beliefs and systems in which he will then find his value. It reminds one of the Flannery O'Connor character, Hazel Motes, who, when he denied Jesus, went out and immediately started the Holy Church of Christ without Christ. In her book, Strange Rites, Leela Burton explores the new religious landscape that has come to America and beyond, even uh, to, to Europe. And she delves deep into what has become of those who said that they no longer had a religion, even that one generation, those called the nuns, who don't have any religion or any religious affiliation whatsoever, but she said a surprising thing is shown, that everyone has a newfound set of religions, no matter what they be, whether it be a cult-like devotion to Harry Potter and the weird things that even adult people, or at least adult children, uh, do in order to worship uh, this particular character from their childhood, whether it be the religion of wellness, you know, uh, self-care and uh, the like, or whether it be social justice or the hope of technological liberation, that we just keep going forward in our technological progress, all of our problems will eventually be solved. Or some form of return to the extreme corners of nationalism with a heavy dose of godless uh, uh, Ayn Rand. They are all religions that form communities, and from these communities they form ethics, and from those ethics they form rituals that bind them together. Burton contends that the current social justice movement is the most full-orbed of these religious movements, in that it has its own rituals, provides communities to discrete oppressed identities, gives a sense of purpose in in campaigning to overthrow the oppressive societal structures, all of them, and gives people meaning to do with their lives, uh, gives meaning to their lives while they do all of this. She writes, Only those with an approved identity status are, like shamans, allowed to speak on certain matters. Well, what does this have to do with us, you may wonder? Well, Paul, in our section of Galatians, takes on, in the second uh, round, religious sins. At this point, the language he uses may seem odd to us. It may seem out of date and non-applicatory. But as mentioned above, every man is religious, and if religious, then a worshiper of something or someone. And as we will see, this isn't just an outside problem. It's not just a problem in the culture, of course, or Paul wouldn't bother mentioning it in this letter to a church that he is hoping to bring to maturity. We in here have a religious problem as well, which may sound strange at first, uh, but hopefully it will become clear as we go. And so let's see that this morning. 
First thing we want to see is idolatry defined. Paul, enlisting the sins of the flesh, moves from the sexual sins that we discussed a couple weeks ago to religious sins. And notice he says the works of the flesh are obvious, and two that he lists here are idolatry and sorcery. I mean, idol worship, what is it? Again, this seems weird to the modern man. This isn't seemingly something that we run into day to day that we need to really deal with. You know, we don't live uh, in some, you know, kind of third world backwater where people are still worshiping stumps and trees and so forth. Often we think of idolatry as sins of the second commandment only. Don't make any carved image or graven image in my likeness in order to worship it. But it will become clear, Lord willing, this morning that idol worship is a whole lot more all-consuming than simply the worship of statues. I mean, that's part of it, for sure. But biblically speaking, that simply is just an aspect or a fruit of idolatry. According to the Bible, idolatry starts from the inside and at certain times will make its way outward into things like graven images. We worship statues, perhaps, because deep down we believe or cling to what they represent to us and what we believe about them and what kind of trust and hope we put in them. Ezekiel, even in rebuking the people of Israel, said to them, you have set up idols in your hearts. And that is what led to the idolatry that eventually came out in the flesh among the people and ultimately also received God's frustration and anger. I mean, consider this. Paul is writing to a Christian church. Yes, a Gentile church, but that should even be more shocking to us. A group that has turned from worshiping worthless idols and come to believe and to worship the living and true God through his son, Jesus Christ. And yet, Paul feels it's necessary to warn this group of people about this particular sin. Maybe even more striking, though a little off uh, our current text, maybe you remember the first epistle of John, where John, in speaking to the early church and its struggle with certain forms of Gnosticism and the question of, did Jesus Christ really come in the flesh? He goes throughout the entirety of this epistle, five chapters, talking about how you must confess certain things, believe certain things, you must agree with the apostles on certain things. Not once does he mention the sin of idolatry. It is all doctrinal in one sense, and the confession that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and is the Son of God. He ends the entirety of the epistle with this sentence, Little children, keep yourself from idols. Why is it so all-encompassing? Why would Paul feel it necessary to end a whole letter with that warning? Why in almost every letter in the New Testament does he have some form of idolatry addressed? Because fundamentally, idolatry is any sin against the first commandment. The first commandment, of course, teaches us that you shall have no other gods before the true God, the living God. The commandment Uh, If that command to love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength is ever broken, if you've ever broken that commandment, you didn't love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, the reason you broke that commandment, or the sin that underlied it, is the sin of idolatry. You loved something, trusted something, believed in something more than the living and true God. 
I mean, consider it. God calls us to worship Him as the alone God who created heaven and earth and all that is in it, sustains everything by the word of His power. And so for Him, for you to worship any other God or any other thing is to fundamentally disobey the first commandment. And what was perhaps most strange about the commandment against idolatry, especially as it comes to us in the New Testament, is that we who are sitting here today clearly believe, Lord willing, that there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, so why the need to repeat this commandment about false gods? I mean, I doubt we're tempted to add another god to our pantheon just in case. You know, not many of us are going to the hilltops to bow down to, you know, uh, poles or to call to Baal for rain to come on our behalf. Or are we? Well, that is the question this morning. What is a God? And therefore, what is, or how, uh, once we define that, we'll ask, how do we worship these gods? Well, let me ask this. Where do you look for your good? I mean, for your provision, your sustenance, your safety, your happiness, your hope, for the future, your confidence. Once you answer those questions, just look at your answers and you have found your God, or several of them anyway. Luther says of this commandment, therefore it is the intent of this commandment to require true faith, speaking of the first commandment, trust of the heart which settles upon the only true God and clings to him alone, That is as much as to say, see, it is that you let me alone be your God. Never seek another one. Whatever you lack of good things, God says, expect it of me and look to me for it. Whenever you suffer misfortune and distress, creep and cling to me. I, yes, I will give you enough and I'll help you out in every time of need. Only let your heart cleave and rest on me and not any other. And therefore, he he concludes this way. I repeat that the chief explanation of this point is that to have a God is to have something in which the heart entirely trusts. So to be an idolater is simply to trust in anything or in anyone at any time in place of the God of Scripture. Where you put your hope, there is your God. And sadly, even as Christians, this isn't a problem that dies easily at our conversion. Even if we confess with our lips the one true God, we betray often by our actions and our fears, our anxieties, that we believe in other gods altogether. So that's what we want to see now, idol worship on display. You see, idol worship isn't relegated to the distant past. It lives right here with us in modern society. It lives right here with us in our own church, in our own hearts. Whatever we trust is our God, whatever we serve is our master, whatever we depend on to meet our deepest longings, that is our Lord. Which is why Jesus can say, you can't serve God and money. And he is presenting there two competing gods. Not just one God 
and then an inanimate object. He's saying you can't serve God and trust in your bank account at the same time. Those two can't coexist. God won't allow both to sit on the throne. That's why Paul can claim for some, their God is their belly, which again may sound odd to us, but it shouldn't sound that odd, should it? I mean, how many of us struggle with this very thing? Paul says, you can so love the things of this world that you imbibe through your mouth that it becomes something that you worship and depend on for solace and for peace, for satisfaction, for happiness. Or yet again, Paul can say, greed is idolatry. Wanting something that you don't have and can't possess is saying to God, you are not enough. This other thing is more important, and since I don't have it, I can never be content until I do. You see, it all comes down to what we're looking to for rescue, for security. It can be identified pretty easily by what completely undoes us when it's taken away. I mean, when's the last time you threw a temper tantrum? Go back, think about it, and then ask what you lost in that moment, or what was in jeopardy, or what didn't go your way, and why it required that kind of response. It required it because you worship at the foot of it, and when it doesn't pay off or is not received by you, it requires that kind of vehement uh, response. Luther says again, Lo, such a man also has a God, mammon by name, money and possessions on which he sets all of his heart, and which is also the most common idol on earth. He who has money and possessions feels secure and is joyful and undismayed as though he were sitting in the midst of paradise itself. This appears again when you notice how presumptuous and secure and proud people are because of such possessions. And listen here. And how despondent when they no longer exist or are in some way withdrawn. So ask yourself, truly ask yourself, where are you setting your hope? What are you depending on to give you meaning and fulfillment, to give you joy, to give you security? I mean, what would completely destroy you if in God's providence it was taken away? I mean, what things would you say, you know what, life's not even worth living if this isn't in it? When trouble comes, where do you run in order that calm may come or security? Because again, in the answer to those questions, you have found your God or probably multiple gods sitting on your Mount Olympus. Wherever we put our hope is religious. And you'll notice when we do this, it's always completely an act of faith. Notice the things we depend on and then the reasons by which we depend on them uh, as if they're always going to pay off. I mean, we think that person, that thing, that future... It will bring me satisfaction or joy or you name it. We, we name it and then we believe by faith that it will secure those things for us. Even though we've done that countless hundreds of times. And it doesn't always pay out that way, does it? 
our hearts are constantly on the prowl, seeking, seeking something to fill our empty spaces, to give us what we want, what we need. As John Calvin famously said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. I mean, we look at the ancients askance, you know, as they run to Zeus and Aphrodite and Eros and Dionysus and Plutus. I mean, as they wanted deep down as these, you know, these pre-modern men, they wanted wealth and beauty and comfort and provision and security. And so they ran all these different ways to try to secure them. And then we ask ourselves, wait a minute, I also am in the pursuit of wealth and beauty and comfort and security, and I don't necessarily go to the doorstep of my Father in heaven in order to find those things. That same impulse lives in us. We've just renamed our gods and we've changed our places of worship. And the hard part is that anything in God's creation, according to Scripture, can become an idol. I mean, you see that in Romans chapter 1. All manner of things in the creation can become an idol. And the hardest part, if you look at the history of the church uh, and the way that they have uh, explicated this particular sin, the most, I guess, egregious or dangerous or confounding part of it is that even the good things that God gives us quickly move from good things to God's. So even the best gifts of God can easily be turned into grievous sins when they become our ultimate thing or the thing that ultimately eclipses God in our own eyes. I mean, some look to their spouse, others their job, some the stock market, hopefully not too much right now, uh, others their political party, some their own intellect. Maybe others run to the liquor cabinet or the computer screen or their beauty regiment, or their workout, or their therapist. You name it, you can make anything on God's green earth a god if you want. And that is how slippery our hearts are. That is how desperate we are to worship, that we can easily take our eyes off the true and living God and put them on something that we think will finally satisfy, but satisfy in a way, again, that we can handle and control uh, and ultimately contend with, which is that second sin that Paul talks about, sorcery, which, you know, in its most basic form is the use of magic, but magic in order to control the created world for our benefit and power, which is the same thing we do now with all sorts of things. Any good thing can become an idol when it replaces God, the Creator, as our source of ultimate trust and final joy. In fact, most idols begin as the good things that are then completely blown out of proportion from family to work to sex to money to food and drink. These are all God's gifts to us, and yet they so easily go askew. Anything where we place the created thing above the Creator Himself, which is why Paul can say that murmuring itself is a form of idolatry, because if the Creator decides to take something from us or not give us something and we complain and moan, we're saying that thing is more important than your uh, will in my life and I trust it for my happiness more than I trust your goodness as my Father to make me happy in the way that you see fit. It's interesting that even uh, the non-religious or the irreligious or 
As we've learned today, there are none of those things. Uh, But those who wouldn't confess the biblical God as God see through this quite clearly. It's come to us in manifold ways throughout history, but even in our own time. I mean, listen to, you know, Russell Brand, not usually someone I'm going to recommend to you as uh, uh, a safe guide to your spiritual life, and yet often he does have wise things to say in the midst of some of his ramblings. But he says this, every time I reinvest in the material world as a potential source of happiness, I'm able to return to them when it fails. When religions talk of idolatry, I feel I know what they're saying. When I make something else my symbol of the divine, I always get in trouble. If you take away all the bombasts and the sense that there are edicts being bellowed from a cloud, saying, don't get too wrapped up in relationships or money, that sounds like the sort of things grandparents might say to us. But the bottom line is, I have an inclination to make these things my salvation. So notice he's saying, look, uh, you may not like the way that it comes, you know, from the, from the, uh, the wiser ones, uh, those who are more mature in age, saying, don't do it, it won't make you happier. You might not like the fact that it's coming from the pages of the Bible, but even this one who doesn't believe fully in those things says, the bottom line is, I have tried to make my salvation things in this world, and they never pay off. They always become a god to me, and they never give me what I'm looking for. And God, of course, being a good husband to his people, is jealous He won't allow anything in this created world to fill his place in your life. And that's why he never allows our false worships to ultimately work. I mean, they work for a little while or he wouldn't do it. But he'll never let them pay off in full. And that's the problem with idolatry. You end up not only misusing the thing, you end up losing the thing in the process in its good forms. I've used this quote before, but I think it's worth repeating. It comes, uh, again, from one who wouldn't necessarily confess our faith, but it's so uh, insightful. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and your beauty and your sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And so for us this morning, the question is, what do we do? And that's what I want us to see in our concluding point. If we've seen idol worship defined, and then we've seen it displayed, how is it destroyed? I mean, how do you deal with a sin like this that Calvin says is constantly festering in us. This isn't a sin you're going to deal once with, and it's just going to go away and leave you alone. It's a sin that's churning out new gods every morning from the moment you wake 
to the moment you go to bed. How do we fight? Notice, not only are these sins based on deliverance, meaning we want rescue, we want deliverance from these things in our lives, but Paul's remedy is based on deliverance. In fact, his whole point here about putting to death the deeds of the flesh is based on deliverance. And if we seek these things in order to be delivered, Paul is saying, you've got the right goal, you want to be delivered, and in fact, you are delivered. You're just seeking your remedy or your hope in the wrong place. Paul has told us previously in Galatians that we were slaves, but now we have been set free in our redemption. Remember, he told us, for freedom, brothers, Christ has set you free, which means God no longer wants you to be a slave to countless other gods, to be worshiping at their altars, to be drugged by the nose at their whims as they give and take as they see fit. And this, what we've been talking about this morning, is exactly what we were slaves to from birth, this sort of idolatry, this sort of life of futility to dependence on things that cannot save, including our own good works, according to Galatians, right? He says, from birth you've been worshiping idols, and one of the things you've been worshiping is your own virtue as if it could get you ingratiated to God. He says, that idol needs to be put to death too. Our idols are never satisfied. You can never sacrifice enough to them. You can never put enough on their altar where they will give you all that you want and all that you need. They will never give you what they promise. And that is the difference between all false gods and this God. According to Paul, according to the the gospel that he's preached to us in Galatians, for this God is satisfied. He requires nothing of you. And instead has given everything in order that you would no longer be a slave to your own self and to the gods of this world. So what's the remedy? If your heart is always working hard to find another God, another thing to depend on that requires more than you can give and never gives what they require, Paul would say, well, then you should look outside of your idol-worshiping heart because there's nothing in there that's going to save you. There's nothing in there that's going to help, and the more you dig in, the more you'll just start to see what's popping out of the factory, if you will. And when you look outside of yourself, Paul would say, look to the cross, and there may you see Jesus. He loves you when you fail. He is faithful when you are unfaithful. He doesn't hold back any good thing. And it's only when you see his mercy and provision, his service to you, not your service to him, this one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The only true God of all creation humbles himself and lowers himself, makes himself of no reputation in order that he might serve you at your most basic needs. Something no God in all of history has done. Surely Zeus wouldn't do that. He would only come down to steal your daughter, not to give you life eternal. It's when you see him as crucified and risen for you, as this one who would give himself holy to you, that you'll have any inkling to give yourself holy to him. It's only then that you'll see that you can fully trust in him, this one who saw you while you were a sinner, 
It's only then that you'll be satisfied with him and hold his gifts in gratitude and be subject to him, knowing that if he didn't spare his son to die for me, I can surely trust that his providence now for me is good if he went through all that trouble to save me while I was still a sinner. You can cast your cares upon him, knowing that he cares for you. This one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This one who says he will never leave you or forsake you. This one who, while you were still a sinner, yet he died for you. And when you were faithless, he was still faithful. Behold your God. The God of the cross, who dies for idol-worshiping children, for a wayward wife, for a prodigal son. See him and adore him, trust him. See that he loves you this much and will stop at nothing to redeem you. Only then would you possibly have the guts or desire to trust in him, to wholly set your heart on him, to believe that what he does in your life is good and for your good and for his glory. And as you do that, as you love him because he first loved you, all of a sudden you see that first great commandment filled. Have no other gods before me. In light of his kindness, in light of the cross. I mean, why would we want to? And that's why he calls us back to that cross week in and week out, that we might see him as altogether lovely and worthy of our affection, our praise, the whole of our lives. And that the things of this life, while good, would never outshine the goodness of our Savior and the love displayed for sinners on the cross. Let us pray.